In the previous episode, we talked about the story of the history of stomachs. We talked about how it was founded by people who had a devotional respect to Alfred Peet, the founder of Peet's Coffee. They all had a strong belief in dark roasted coffee and wanted to spread it across the United States. Meanwhile, in New York, Howard Schultz was climbing the ranks of social order and cruising through life with a well-paid job. On a fateful visit to Seattle, he fell in love with Starbucks and the romance of good coffee. He would ask his way into the firm and make great changes of growth inside it. On one visit to Italy, he found out that the romance of coffee was best expressed through espresso bars and that Starbucks was missing out on it. After failing to convince his bosses, the original founders of Starbucks, to offer coffee beverages, he made his own path and left Starbucks. He founded Il Giornale, which, thanks to his timing and the contribution of both Starbucks founders and other smart coffee lovers, became a steady enterprise very soon. As he was barely catching his breath in this epic run, Schultz heard a great piece of news. Starbucks owners, who also owned Pete's Coffee by that point, wanted to sell off Starbucks. Pete's was enough, they thought. Now, what would Schultz do? The story continues. Two men in their 30s sat in an Il Giornale store. One had a doppio macchiato and the other a cappuccino. We did it, they both said, raising their cups. One of the men was Scott Greenberg, an attorney rising in his career. In front of him on the table was a huge document with two images on it. One the head of Mercury in a green circle and the other a siren in a brown circle. They were the logos of Il Giornale and Starbucks, respectively. The other man sitting across from Greenberg was Howard Schultz. They just bought Starbucks. Schultz now held the reins to Starbucks and Il Giornale and to the future of America's coffee. Welcome to Talking of Giants, a podcast that talks about the stories of giants of various fields. We are on this podcast currently riding a caffeine high with the story of Starbucks. Grab a cup and settle down. Howard Chills found himself on the floor of the Starbucks roastery. He had been gone for several months from Starbucks and founded his own coffee espresso bar chain, Il Giornale. Not only did he have three successful locations, one of them was in Canada. By adding Starbucks to Il Giornale, it tripled in size with respect to outlets. Il Giornale already used beans from Starbucks roastery from day one. But now, Schultz also owned the roastery and thus the direction of the lives of those employees. Schultz sensed that there was not much enthusiasm about him purchasing Starbucks because their careers were on the line and they were skeptical. The older friends he had known from the roastery congratulated him, but many did not buy into the idea that a guy who ran an espresso bar chain could understand the value of high-quality coffee. He, after all, had gone against the founders of Starbucks to move away from selling beans, which is what Starbucks did at the time, to selling coffee. Schultz reassured them that they would all be valued. He spoke to them and told them of his plan to make the company big. He told them that he wanted them to look back on this day 
in the future and feel happy to have been at the start of the great enterprise that they were going to build together. Speeches and all aside, they were still doubters. An ambitious New Yorker with an aggressive growth strategy wasn't exactly comforting to the Seattleite employees who by far had been working for a chain that enjoyed a small niche audience for quality coffees. In fact, the first Monday after Schultz took over, the head roaster quit. Dave Olson stepped right in into that role and made it his own. Now, who is Dave Olson? Dave Olson was another coffee nerd in Seattle. The original people at Starbucks really respected his knowledge of coffee. He also had become a coffee fanatic after being exposed to Alfred Pete's coffee in California. He traveled to a lot of cafes around California and later set up his own cafe in the University District in Seattle. His cafe was called Cafe Allegro. And Cafe Allegro was a very relaxed and bohemian place where students and professors would hang out and discuss various topics. Starbucks would later become a version of Cafe Allegro with many more features. Dave Olson had heard that Howard Schultz had quit Starbucks and was planning to start an espresso bar style unit in Seattle. Dave Olson reached out to Schultz and expressed his interest to work with him. Compared to Schultz, who only knew the functioning of an espresso bar by looking at some in Italy, Olson had run Cafe Allegro for many years. For a decade, he had made coffee and served coffee there and knew the ins and outs of running a cafe. It was with him that Howard Schultz built Il Giornale. As Il Giornale bought Starbucks and grew, Dave Olson became an integral part of Starbucks. By picking up when the previous head roaster left, Dave Olson picked up the necessary skills to lead Starbucks into the future. There was one other decision that was key before moving ahead with the grand plans. What should this new company be called? Il Giornale is the company that bought Starbucks, obviously. But Starbucks was the more well-known name. Due to its mail-order business, Starbucks also was known across America. Due to Schultz's dream of taking Starbucks national, this was important for him. But at the same time, the team that built Il Giornale loved the name. And the name had a very loyal following of customers. Il Giornale was a name that was very much in line with the aesthetic and mission that was at the core of the company Schultz left Starbucks to build. It was an Italian name. It was not part of regular American lexicon and sounded authentic. But it couldn't have been a totally unbiased decision without external counsel for Schultz to make. So Schultz brought in the man that helped design the Starbucks logo along with Gordon Boker, a co-founder of the earlier Starbucks. The designer reviewed both the logos and his verdict was simple. El Giornale was hard to pronounce. It was hard to spell. It was hard to write. It did not have the same recognition that the name Starbucks had. Starbucks, on the other hand, sounded very American. It was already beloved to many people across the country who bought mail-order coffee and was also very well known within Seattle. Eventually, Schultz had to put aside his pride. He had to give up his baby. He decided to give up the Il Giornale name. Starbucks seemed right to him, right for the future of the company he dreamed of building. With regards to the logo, however, 
a compromise was arrived at. The brown color of the older logo was done away with. The siren was changed into a cleaner and plainer look and the green circle from the Il Gionale logo was put around the siren. The stores were rebranded, keeping in line with the atmosphere they wanted to create at the Espresso bars, as opposed to the old age wooden top counter feel that the other Starbucks stores had. The rebranding was done, the merging of the companies was done, now they had to cruise ahead. But the conundrum is this. How does a company that is built by the founders rolling up their sleeves, loading cargo and serving coffee, morph itself smoothly into a corporate giant that does everything by mandate? How does it stay alive during the transition and still stay itself? Is the ship of Theseus really the ship of Theseus? To understand which things needed to change, it is important to understand which things previously worked out and would not anymore. Two things, two things that really come to mind are the instinct-based nature of decision-making and the aggressive loyalty to what Starbucks had, to what it considered was the right way of drinking coffee. Two problems, two solutions, two people. Howard believed in hiring ahead of the curve, meaning that he recruited people who had more experience than was needed for Starbucks at that moment. Two such men were Howard Behar and Oren Smith. Howard Behar had 25 years of retail experience. For a company that was devoted to its own ways of coffee, Howard Behar turned into a much needed shot in the arm, rather a smack in the face. Behar came to Starbucks when they had about 28 stores. There were plans to double the number that year. Behar got to work right after he joined Starbucks. When he held meetings, he made it clear that he wanted to have people give honest feedback. He would encourage conflict even just so Starbucks would come out of its calmer shell and be more outspoken. Once an employee came up to him after a meeting and told him, if what you say is true and you really want to know, there are a few things. Behar asked her to make a list and responded to each one of them in due time. And thus, he built a culture of feedback. There was another piece of feedback that was becoming increasingly common that would put him on a collision path with Howard Schultz and Dave Olson, the Cafe Allegro founder who was now top press at Starbucks. There was an, at the time, new trend of people preferring non-fat milk in their drinks. A health-conscious crowd was always asking for the option of non-fat milk. But Starbucks only had whole milk. The people at Starbucks, including Schultz, held on to their idea that only whole milk was right for them. For good reason. The good reason being, drinks just did not taste as good with non-fat milk. It altered the taste and it was not up to the standard that Schultz and Olson held for Starbucks. Schultz told Bihar that non-fat was not a good idea because it did not taste good. Bihar's immediate response had been, to who? The people wanted it and Bihar fought for it. He even got into an argument with one of the staff who stood up for the purity of the Starbucks cup. The person told Bihar that if they did non-fat, they would end up doing whatever the customer wanted. Behar's reply best illustrates how he felt and thought about 
serving customers. He said, are you nuts? Of course we will do what they want us to do. Behar did not win the non-fat battle immediately though. But he did not concede either. One day, a win would come looking for him. Howard Schultz, the CEO, had one day gone to a Starbucks in the morning. He witnessed a woman walk in wearing running attire. She seemed to be done with her morning run and walked in for a cup of coffee. She ordered what she wanted and added non-fat milk, please. The barista calmly told the customer that they did not serve non-fat. The lady mentioned how they made it the way she wanted at a different store. The barista repeated what she said and apologized. The customer walked right out. Obviously she did. Someone running early in the morning to stay healthy might not find Starbucks their place of choice if all they had was whole milk. It was probably not lost on Schultz how he felt about the employees that worked at the earlier iteration of Starbucks. They had an attitude of knowing better about coffee and looking down at others' preferences as lesser than. Was he probably committing the same error? Schultz had his answer. They had to experiment. That day, he went to the office and told Bihar to get to work. There was initial resistance from certain store managers who were chosen for the limited trials. But once they realized it was logistically possible to achieve and also improved customer loyalty, they became proponents of the non-fat option. Soon, it was rolled out to all their outlets and as years passed, contributed to a significant proportion of the overall sales. The fantasy of Starbucks was an easygoing Italian espresso bar, a bohemian European cafe even. But the truth was, Starbucks sold a great deal to morning joggers and office workers. Clinging on to the mere romance might have driven them away if not kept practical at the same time. Starbucks could not eat the cake and keep it at the same time. One other such compromise that Starbucks had to make early on was cups. The drinks that Starbucks served would have best been served in porcelain cups. Paper cups did not retain the flavor the way porcelain cups did. But something had to give. It is an easy enough compromise compared to what came much later. As Starbucks went national and grew to enormous proportions, it was very much on the radar of different interest groups. One of these groups was environmental activists. Starbucks, amongst other things, was criticized for the amount of waste it generated. There was one particular part of that waste that even Schultz was not comfortable with, the double cupping. At the time, Starbucks had trouble serving hot drinks. Many customers asked for these hot drinks to go and did not drink them inside Starbucks. The only economic option for Starbucks was to use paper cups to serve these drinks. But they were too hot to handle for customers because the paper cups were not very thick. The simple solution that baristas used for this reason was double cupping. Put the coffee in a cup, put the cup in another cup. Simple and did not affect Starbucks's brand which still got to serve in its nice paper cups. But it generated twice the waste. It was both an environmental and cost problem and had to be dealt with. One early trial was to use a thin polystyrene cup. To be fair, the cup got the job done and was cost effective. But the customers hated it. It looked very cheap 
and did not feel as nice to hold. It went against the image people held of Starbucks as a refined place to enjoy coffee. This was a situation where change was needed. But a change that costs Starbucks its brand image would be too expensive a price to pay. So the polystyrene cup had to go. The final savior in this saga is the humble sleeve. The humble sleeve, the hot cup team, as the team to come up with a solution for this was called, came up with a corrugated cardboard solution. A piece of cardboard would be made into a ring. A ring that would fit as a sleeve when a cup was slipped into it. The cardboard sat on the middle of the cup and helped the user to hold the drink comfortably. It used less paper than a whole second cup and could also be made using recycled paper. Partly recycled paper. They also put a Starbucks logo on it down the road and it fit right into the brand image of a good-looking Starbucks cup. Today, that very sleeve is a part of the Starbucks identity. This kind of creative work required that Starbucks behind the scenes was running as a well-oiled machine. The ambitious entrepreneurial energy could only thrive in the mountain that was Starbucks only if there were processes in place to take care of all the other things that weren't quite as sexy. The person to handle that was Oren Smith. He was the second part of the two-parter answer. Howard Schultz, by his own admission in his book about Starbucks, would have freaked out if someone came up to him and said, okay, we need to make Starbucks more formal now. The idea that Starbucks would have processes and take decisions by committees worried Schultz a great deal. Starbucks was built on passion and love for coffee, and he worried that rigid structures would ruin that. Oren Smith, who handled the finances and processes at Starbucks, was the perfect balance Schultz could have hoped for. While he made no great speeches or passionate pleas about the change he was bringing in, he still was making those changes. He worked relentlessly and methodically to put systems in place that would ease all the behind-the-scenes work. You know, the boring parts of the equation. Having such a detail-oriented man quietly building a corporation behind the face of a youthful startup helped Schultz be the energy and face of hope for the growing Starbucks. Some decisions are repetitive, cost-centric. Some decisions require work that creates forward push for increments, no matter how small those increments are. Consistency is key because consistency creates reliability, a reliability that is especially important for a company on the public markets, a type of company that Starbucks became. In 1992, it was Oren Smith that was by Schultz's side during the roadshow prior to the initial public offering after which Starbucks became a public company. Schultz was the dreamer on a sailing ship and Oren Smith was the anchor. Seeming opposites, but both are utterly necessary. Apart from Dave Olson, the coffee heart of Starbucks, these three men sailed Starbucks into the public markets. A huge win for every budding company. H2O, they were called. Howard, Howard, and Oren. Howard Schultz, Howard Behar, and Oren Smith.
Talking of Giants is a podcast hosted by Vikhyat Mutyala. The theme soundtrack was composed by Bertie Ashley. You can reach me Vikhyat Mutyala at talkingofgiants@gmail.com. That is talkingofgiants@gmail.com. Hope you enjoyed the show.